You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. I'm neck deep in the research for this podcast season when I get an email from another journalist. She says she has a story that shook up the way she thinks about ranching in the West. Last year, she met the May family, who's changing the narrative around cattle's impact on grasslands and climate change, from ranching being part of the problem to being part of the solution. I'm intrigued. So we agree to meet up at the Wyoming Public Radio Station. Birch Malotki matches her name, willowy and sweet, but tough once you get to know her. She works at the University of Wyoming, writing and editing for the natural resource magazine, Western Confluence. We sit down, and this is what she tells me. You don't hear about it much, and I didn't before I started this reporting, but grasslands are one of the most endangered ecosystems in the world, and one of the least protected. In the U.S., their fate is largely in the hands of landowners, since the vast majority of remaining grasslands are privately owned. I remember vividly the baked hard pan in the Red Desert that Eric Mulvar showed me back in episode four. That was pretty clear proof of how overgrazing can degrade, not protect, grasslands. But Birch says that's not the only problem grasslands face. It turns out the much bigger threat to grasslands is the plow. Every year, grassland is converted to farmland at a blistering pace because row crops like corn and soy make better money. Ranching keeps the land in grass. From there, it's up to good stewardship to keep the land healthy. I think back to the benefits offered by regenerative practices, including the promise of sequestering carbon. Birch says carbon is the second big issue that the May family is tackling. So grassland conversion is a problem for the global climate because plowing grasslands releases literal tons of planet-warming carbon into the atmosphere. So preventing conversion of grassland into farmland, like the May Ranch is doing, is a climate win. Even with all the emissions from those cow farts and burps, I ask? Yeah, that might be the wildest part of the story. Even with 800 cows, the May Ranch still produces fewer climate warming emissions than if they plowed it up to plant corn. Scientists have quantified that, and the family is making money off of it by selling carbon offsets that guarantee all that carbon stays in the soil. Wow, I tell Birch. Yes, let's include the May family's story. 
I want to know how they made that happen and what challenges they faced along the way. We shake on the deal. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Here's Birch to take over and tell you the story in full. It all started with one cow. All of our cattle, I think I told you, Birch, are from one heifer calf in the early 1970s. That's Dallas May, head of the May family farm and ranch. When Dallas turned 13 years old, his grandfather gave him a cow of his own. Dallas's grandfather didn't have much to give. He ran a small herd of just 25 cattle and was always trying to make ends meet to find a place to keep his herd. So when Dallas inherited that first calf, he also inherited a dream of finding a place to call home. In the 80s, he found 20,000 acres in southeastern Colorado to lease. After more than three decades of leasing, he got the opportunity to purchase the land. But it wasn't easy. It took us a couple of years of trying to get financed, leveraging everything we had to be able to get financed and buy it. Not a lot of ranchers can buy land nowadays. It's expensive, and a working cattle ranch requires a lot of acres. That's especially true for operations like the May Ranch that don't supplement with grazing on public lands. But in 2012, they made it happen, becoming proud and committed owners of one of the last patches of native grassland in the area. They were responsible for it now. So since 2012, and we started the commitment, our family's life commitment, basically, to try to pay for this ranch. Now, along with that is our commitment to try to keep it pristine and increase its enhancements as we go. Everything that happened afterward with grassland protection and carbon sequestration came from this commitment that their family made to care for the land that was going to care for them. So as soon as he closed on the property, Dallas started reaching out to conservation organizations, asking for help. He was looking for tools that could help him balance a big mortgage with a strong stewardship ethic in an industry with pretty marginal profitability. And he was looking for tools that would protect the land for a long time. At first though, help was not forthcoming. Dallas and his son, Riley, tell me the story as we drive through their ranch in late June of last year. Here's Riley. You gotta understand though, when dad mainly started calling, we couldn't get any traction. Nobody wanted to talk to us. Yeah. So it's just continually calling every, you know, association we can think of that telling them what we've got and what we're trying to do and, and a lot it was, didn't show interest it was nine out of ten don't even return your calls or want to talk why do you think that is because we're not the mountains or streams and trees and we're the flat arid easter plains just hmm. written off as invaluable basically the flat arid eastern plains they tell me this as we look over big sandy creek which is lined with bulrushes and loud with the sound of songbirds the two are eager to point out beaver dams, which they say improve wetland health 
and form shallow aquifers along the waterway. Sandpipers bob along its edge, and Dallas tells me to keep an eye out for softshell turtles. Invaluable? I don't think so. Dallas didn't think so either, so he kept reaching out after that first bout of discouragement. In 2015, I made another effort at it. Mm -hmm. And by then, I guess it was just starting to be some awareness of the importance of short grass prairies Mm -hmm. and birds and the diversity that we have. This time, Dallas got a hold of Allison Holleran at Audubon of the Rockies, and she visited the very next morning. Then, got the ranch designated an important bird area within a week. She also gave him a list of names and organizations that could provide them with the tools they were looking for. From there, the momentum kept rolling. And that created a chain that's never stopped of us working with people. That chain included a crucial link named Billy Gascoigne. Billy handed them a brand new tool that aligned perfectly with their goals to protect the land while preserving their way of life. That tool was a carbon credit, and it set them on a trailblazing path to be the second grassland project in America to participate in the global carbon market. Uh, My name is Billy Gascoigne. I work for Ducks Unlimited, where I'm the Associate Director of Conservation Strategy, and I've managed DU's grassland carbon portfolio for the last eight years. If you don't know what he means by DU's grassland carbon portfolio, you're not alone. If interest in grassland conservation is relatively new, interest in the carbon stored by grasslands is even newer. But grasslands do store carbon, underground mostly, in the soil. Over the past eight years, DU has tried to protect that soil carbon from being released into the atmosphere in the form of climate warming emissions. As part of that effort, Billy helped pioneer a tool called Grassland Carbon Credits. Yeah, a carbon credit or a carbon offset, as you'll often hear it referred to, um, is the the sequestration or avoided emission of one ton of carbon equivalent. That's one metric ton of carbon dioxide or an equally warming amount of another greenhouse gas, like methane or nitrous oxide. Sequestration means taking that greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere. Avoided emission means preventing that greenhouse gas from being released in the first place. Uh, And companies and individuals and the like can use them to offset their emissions from, say, transportation or uh, fossil fuel usage, energy production, etc. The end goal is to help keep the world on track with its climate goals and avoid the worst impacts from climate change to people and the environment. Carbon offsets are just one tool in the climate mitigation toolbox. Most people say they need to be used alongside other measures not instead of them. There are lots of types of carbon offset, and different organizations specialize in different kinds. And in our case, with Ducks Unlimited, we have actually worked uh, mostly on the proactive protection of at-risk grasslands. So the avoided conversion of that below-ground carbon is where we spent most of our time. Conversion to what, you might ask? In a lot of cases, it's plowing up grassland to plant row crops, like corn and soy. 
obviously grasslands with good quality soils that are suitable for crop production. Much of the economics in the last few decades have, have indicated that they can be more profitable in a row crop system. And we have a lot of kind of pressures to, to do more row cropping. Last episode, we heard that the scientific jury is still out on whether changing management practices can actually increase how much carbon grasslands sequester. But the science is crystal clear on what happens to the carbon already stored in the land if that land is plowed for row crop agriculture. It's released into the atmosphere to the tune of 14 million metric tons of carbon per year from 2008 to 2016. That's the equivalent of the annual emissions of 13 coal-fired power plants. Grassland carbon credit projects avoid these emissions by preventing grassland conversion. Essentially, by paying landowners to never, ever plow their land. In exchange for this guarantee not to plow, landowners are paid for the carbon emissions their actions are avoiding through the sale of carbon credits. The cool thing about these projects is that in addition to climate mitigation, they also offer ecological and social benefits. It's those co-benefits that brought Billy and the May family together in the first place. But there were a lot of hurdles to get there. That's when we come back. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. A few years back, when Dallas started calling around to try to protect his land, he was well aware of the threat of grassland conversion. Back when they first got the opportunity to buy the property, there were entities waiting in the wings to buy this ranch. And in a week's time after closing on it, they would have plowed it all up. Right. All of the native habitat would have been gone. I mean, it just would have. After all, farms already surrounded the property. But the plow wasn't Dallas's vision for the land. Nor did he want to maximize cow production at the expense of everything else. He wanted the habitat and all the wildlife that comes with it. That's why we're trying to keep everything we have as pristine, untouched by man. You know, yeah, we're grazing it and we're doing everything we can, but we're trying to do it in a natural way. Mm-hmm. See, on, a, on this ranch, even though it's, it's not a big ranch, it's a small footprint, 20,000 acres, but in 40 years on this ranch, we have never shot a coyote. We have never shot a prey dog. We've never killed a rattlesnake. We, every animal on this ranch, that finds its way into natural balance to make things work. Dallas is aware that some people think of ranching as extractive, that they say it harms rather than supports land health. But to him, having stake in the land means being invested in its well-being. And honestly, there, there are so many ranchers that are conservationists. They're not consumers, they're conservationists. Mm-hmm. If we didn't take care of this place, I mean, 
Our life is committed to this place. Why would we not do our ultimate best to keep it in the best shape we can keep it? That doesn't mean robbing all the resources of it off. That means having sustainability and resiliency so that, like Grady said, 200 years from now, this place is hopefully even better than it is today. In that spirit, they're installing wildlife-friendly fencing. They're restoring wetlands and playas. They're Audubon bird-friendly certified and are ranked at the top for good agricultural practices. Still, Dallas recognizes the economic pressures that ranchers face. The bottom line is you have to be able to make your payments. If you can't make your payments, I don't care what your philosophy is, you won't be able to be out here and be doing any of it because you won't be able to stay here. It's that tension between the need to make ends meet and the desire to steward the land in a sustainable, holistic way that recurs again and again in the maze story. I mean, if you can decide to run 100 cows instead of 800, and that sounds great, yeah, you, you'll have an abundance of feed. All of a sudden, you don't have enough income to pay your, make your payments. So your fixed costs do not change. Your mortgage, land, interest, insurance, feed, everything goes to those fixed costs. And if you're not selling enough calves to meet that demand, you're not going to be doing it for very long. So there is a balance. It's a happy medium. The sense I get is that the balance is not stable. It's a constant push and pull at the mercy of unpredictable weather and market conditions. Right now, the maize look like they're thriving. Yeah, I was amazed just driving down how lush everything was. Yeah, we do look fantastic right now. Yeah, you do We're, look good. We enjoy it. But the thick green thatching of their pastures hides the bones of a crisis just beneath the surface. We would have been out here a year ago at this time that would look anything like this much. We're in dire, dire straits. It's so dry. Yes. If they had sold, it would have been into a flooded market at rock-bottom prices, since ranchers all over the West were struggling with the same lack of rain. Drought aside, even normal markets haven't been kind. Actually, in 2012, we sold calves for $3.15 a pound. Right. Um, this past year, we sold the same calves, better calves, for $1.42. So how does that work? And well, that's my question. Yeah, how does it? It, it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Our costs have not went down. Yeah. Our costs have continued to climb, just like everything else. Right. Yeah, the margins are not only are they getting increasingly smaller, sometimes they're non existent, they're naked. Driving through the ranch listening to Dallas and Riley is almost surreal. The land feels healthy. I can tell how committed the maze are to protecting and even improving it. And yet, the possibility of failure, the loss of the land, and the potential to have all their hard work reversed seems ever to loom just over the horizon. For Billy, that looming threat is part of what drew him to the May Ranch as a potential candidate for a carbon credit project. When he first spoke with Dallas. So that ranch was converted on all four sides. He literally had conversion offers in hand um, and he was trying to make the financing work to protect it. 
And so it had all the makings of a perfect avoided conversion project where we could come in, utilize the carbon markets to try to help provide another incentive for he and his family to, to keep it in grass and keep it in ranching long-term. Protecting the May Ranch also offered environmental and social wins. And then ecologically, um, it stands above and beyond uh, what you could imagine. I mean, it's got a diverse array of bird species, threatened and endangered species. Um, it has antelope deer, uh, a number of, of waterfowl that come through there. It's got eight miles of sand creek that sort of stay uh, running all year long. It has all the makings of being able to sustain some very important rare and threatened species. And uh, as well as I mentioned, the cultural and the social aspects of, of a working cattle ranch and kind of a rural part of Colorado. I can attest to all the ecological benefits Billy mentioned. Early in the morning, Riley stopped the truck to take a picture of a particularly handsome swath of grass. And Dallas says, We're sitting right here, Birch. Uh-huh. You may not circle with us. Mm-hmm. There are a hundred different species of plants. Most of them are native, according to Denver Botanical Gardens surveys conducted over several years. Of the 335 species of plants found on the May Ranch, 85% were native. And 95 of those species have never been documented in the county. Pastures so that each year we're turning into that pasture at a different time so that it has different periods of rotation and rest versus every year the same schedule turning into that grass. And it lets different types of species of grass develop and reestablish. As we talk, Riley is interrupted by a wildlife sighting off to our right. Oh, yeah. We have a huge, well, not huge, a group of about 35 that stay right here in about two mile area year round. You mean mule deer? That's why I said. Yeah, we have hundreds of whitetail. Yeah. But the mule mule deer deer are kind of unique to our area there. They don't have much other habitat to be in. The ranch is not only important habitat for big game like deer and elk, but birds as well. Right here where we're standing is the biggest breeding colony of black rails in the state of Colorado. Right here. Just four months after I visit, the eastern black rail is listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. The ranch also recently reintroduced a population of black-footed ferrets the nation's most endangered mammal. And they have such a thriving swift fox population that Colorado Parks and Wildlife are trapping them to deliver to the Fort Belknap Reservation in Montana. They even see these notoriously elusive critters just roaming around, a testament to their careful stewardship. Um, CPW is going to do a swift fox monitoring program. I saw a swift fox the night before last right by the hay shed. Oh, good. No joke, they're on oh, the cool. southeast by the, that land plane. And uh, I keep you, forgetting to tell you, but <laughs> I was turning there. And I thought it was that cat. And then I, uh, he was like, I was turning. So he stayed in my headlights for a long time. Really? No doubt about it. Yeah, well, there's lots of swift foxes, but you never see them. Yeah. Right. Because they're nocturnal and they're, they're secluded. They don't want you to see them. They're like bobcats. They're here, but you don't see them. Yeah. It, it was three in the morning. So, yeah, there was a lot to protect on this land. 
The big question was how exactly to get it done. There had only ever been one carbon credit project implemented on grasslands before, in the Dakotas several years prior. Billy led the charge on that one too. So if there was anyone prepared to make it happen on the May Ranch, it was him. But still, there was no formal protocol, no certainty, barely any precedent. When you proposed this idea, how did Dallas respond? Well, um, <laughs> just like with, with most landowners, I have to take a lot of time to, to try to explain this stuff. And, and at the end of all the, the explanation and kind of back and forth of me laying out the ins and outs of a project, um, he saw the alignment with what he was trying to do. Um, and from there, he starts to just kind of build trust and, um, you know, I think ultimately Dallas sort of trusted me to lead this in the right direction. It took two years and a team of 25 scientists to develop a formal protocol for the project. They had to outline what lands qualify as avoided conversion and figure out how the climate benefit would be calculated. They also had to get an independent third party to verify that everything was what they said it was. Dallas says that first year, the verification team flew in from the Congo, where they were working on a different carbon project. So these um, man and lady come in, we have a day-long meeting with them, tell them what we're doing. They spent like the next four days walking the ranch, taking soil samples, looking at our grazing management, looking at the wetlands, mapping everything. So they did their initial work and they left here, went back to Africa, uh, it took like months later before all the reports were done. The verification was done. The verification process ensures the May Ranch is actually generating as many carbon credits as they claim. Yeah, they know how much by our soil types and our, our plant inventory. Mm -hmm. They know what we're crediting, but what they don't know is how much are we emitting ourselves? Mm -hmm. So the cattle, as you know, with methane, they're emitting. Um, there, there are a lot of um, biogenic emissions right. that have to be deducted off of our total. But we have to do our part to limit the anthropogenic emissions, which is our mm -hmm. fossil fuel use. All of the ranch's emissions, including methane from cattle, count against their total carbon savings and reduce the number of credits they can sell. One of the ways they try to limit emissions is still doing everything on horseback. Maybe that explains the fact that today, Riley's pickup is almost out of gas and seems to be having issues. If we could get a more direct producer to consumer um, market, we would be in much better shape. And also I didn't shut my pickup off, it died. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> But, yeah, as far as alternative yeah. is, some electrical issue that I've been having. So. Oh, no. That, I guess I should have filled up fuel while we were at the truck stop, too. Anyways, the math works out so that each year, the ranch avoids roughly 15,000 metric tons of emissions, but produces 5,000. So they can only sell the difference, about 
10,000 carbon credits. That's how they calculate the carbon savings. But they also have to guarantee that carbon stays in the ground no matter what. So at the same time as the carbon project, the May family also had to place a conservation easement with a so-called no sod busting clause on their property. The easement made their decision not to plow legally binding forever. A two-year commitment on a carbon credit program is nothing. Yeah, right. It's worthless. Because in three years, they decide to go in there and disc it up. It's any little benefit they accumulated is gone. So it's virtue signaling. The only way to have get some public trust in carbon credit offsets in agriculture mm-hmm. is to have something that is permanent. And that means your commitment that for the next, say, 50 years, you're going to keep it in those practices. It was hard to get everything done in time, but a whole team of people and organizations helped make it happen. May Ranch Credits hit the market for the first time in 2017. Ducks Unlimited is responsible for selling those credits. They can sell directly to an end buyer like a major corporation or through intermediaries. May credits have also been available to the public, but they've sold out fast. These days, people do seem to care about the grasslands. So what do Riley and Dallas think about it now, five years after they sealed the deal? Dallas says it's all about stewardship, not money. Well, that's when we've been doing all the extra things we can do. And most of them, Birch, aren't financial. I mean, they really don't make a big difference financially. It's like selling 5 to 10% more cows per year, he says. Nice, but not enough to bridge the gap between rising costs and falling revenue. Trying to conserve habitat, trying to not let this ever be destroyed, that is intrinsic, that you can't put a number on If you're serious, if you're serious about conserving your grasslands, there's no reason not to do it. Anybody with the right motivation should jump on it. If another rancher came to you and was like, you know, I've heard about this thing, carbon credit projects, uh, and I've heard you've done it, you know, what would you say to them? I would say, why are you waiting? (laughs) A happy ending, except that climate change, the very thing that these carbon offset projects are trying to mitigate, continues to wreak havoc on ecosystems and livelihoods. In the West, it's an extended mega drought that's led to water shortages and more and more wildfires. This spring, after a winter without snow, a grass fire ripped through 9,000 acres of the May Ranch and additional acreage in the surrounding counties. No humans died, but the Mays lost livestock and most of the ranch's fencing burned. Worst of all, the fire threatened to undo some of decades worth of conservation efforts. I checked in with Billy about how this could affect the carbon project. Grassland carbon and soil carbon is what folks would refer to as as steady carbon. Um, You know, it's much more resilient 
to changing weather patterns and and kind of natural disasters, if you will. That's because 90% of the carbon in grasslands is stored underground. Those below ground carbon reserves should relatively remain uh, intact. Um, So we're going to go out there and and kind of monitor all that. But uh, nonetheless, the project still remains viable from a climate mitigation standpoint. Plus, the models used for carbon credit projects have uncertainty baked in, as well as insurance against natural disasters. Billy said another thing that reminded me of why I found this project so compelling. He said that after the fire, there was an outpouring of support for the maze. And not just from their family and friends. There was also aid from the many environmental and conservation organizations the maze partnered with on this and many other projects. It was observed by the family that there was kind of a a bigger community coming together and, and looking and willing to provide resources and help in any other way we can. We do live in unprecedented times. How the land and its ability to sequester carbon will respond to rising temperatures and the changing weather patterns, it's beyond me. And no one solution is going to fix all of our problems. But building community and a network of mutual aid is a start. Doing that while protecting resilient carbon stores and a fast disappearing ecosystem, to me, that seems worth pursuing into the unknown. Just like Dallas and his family did years ago, when Billy said to them, hey, I've got an idea. That was Birch Malatke. As you can hear at the end of her story, ranchers are facing hard truths as droughts worsen. But some are stepping up on the front lines of the climate crisis. On part eight of The Great Individualist, we meet a group of ranchers who've banded together to fight an effort to hoard groundwater on the high plains of southeastern Wyoming. We have to save our creeks. We have to save our wetlands. I don't know, but whatever's left is sacred and has to be saved. Are you a rancher interested in offering rangeland carbon credits? We'd love to hear your story. Reach out to us on social media at Modern West Pod. Or email me at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. I'm Melody Edwards. Tennessee Watson is our story editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Noah Greenspan is assistant producer. Anna Rader is our marketing coordinator. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett and Diane Berner. You can read a longer version of this story in the Western Confluence magazine or online at westernconfluence.org. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.